The New Testament uh, scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And if you have the Red Pew Bible, that's on pages uh, 1,244. We'll start with uh, verse 5. Let us pray as we prepare to read God's Word. Lord, as we uh, prepare to read the passage from the New Testament this morning, I would just ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. Lord, may your word speak true. Lord, may it be that two-edged sword that divides joint from marrow. Lord, just speak to us, Lord, as we read. We ask this in your name. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Again, that's on page uh, 1244, if you're in your red pew Bible. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is coveted, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you're telling me there's a chance. Remember that feeling, that crazy first crush? Remember that first kiss? Remember just being infatuated with whatever chance there was? Uh, your first, who was your first crush? Who was your first kiss? I was in uh, third, fourth grade at Western Plateau. And I was in Mrs. Red's class. And I got in trouble. I had to stay after, of course. And I was leaving, walking out of the classroom, and a girl named Felicia Tackard Apparently she had a crush on me, I didn't know girls existed, and she just ran over and planted one on me. And of course I did the right thing, I punched her in the arm and said, that was stupid. <clears throat> and then I ran home and I gargled Listerine, I didn't tell my mom for two weeks. <laughs> then in middle school I chased her all around Crockett. <laughs> so, uh, your first love, your first, what, and what was your first, like that first love song, your favorite love song of all time? What's that song that's like, mm, this is the best one? 
Uh, Rolling Stone magazine says the best rock and roll love song ever written, top 100 rock and roll song was I Can't Get No Satisfaction, I Just Can't by the Rolling Stones. Billboard magazine said the best love song ever written was Don't Stop Believing by Journey. And last night when Texas was just about to be, get beat, <laughs> the, the, the UT fans were singing that like maybe this, a miracle will happen and it did. Country Western Magazine says the best love song ever written was Dolly Parton, I Will Always Love You, which Whitney Houston made a hit. What do you think the best love song ever written is? What's your favorite love song? Well, I bet you won't guess what wins for all time historical favorite love song. It's actually in the Bible. It's actually like Tina Turner says, what's love got to do with it? Talking about maybe it's the church or Christian. Why are Christians talking about love and sex? And why, why are we talking about love and sex with our middle school and high school kids? What's love got to do with the church, with the Bible? It has everything, everything to do with it. We're going to look at what's determined by the Jewish culture and by many in our culture as the best love song ever written. Perhaps something you've never read or never been familiar with. It's called the Song of Solomon. We're talking about, as, as we talk about the way of wisdom will be our, our study this year, or excuse me, this season. And last week, Dan looked at uh, Solomon. As Solomon took over the kingdom from his father, uh, David, and he was a very wise young man. He was overwhelmed and humbled by being king. And, he, and the Lord said, I will give you anything you want, like genie in the bottle. You ask and I'll give it. And he had the humility and the wisdom to say, I, I need wisdom to, to, to lead the people. And God gave him wisdom, the wisest man that's ever lived to date, he also gave him, with that, because of his humility, he gave him wealth. He's still the wealthiest human being in the history of the earth. Now, around this Solomon, there was uh, wisdom literature because he was so wise, a collection of wisdom literature. It's in the scriptures, it's called that way. We have the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the book of Lamentations. We have this odd little book. It's actually not really your typical. I don't know if you ever studied it. Probably don't know my memory verse. Maybe you don't even know where it is. It's called the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs. When the Hebrews say something twice, it's an exclamation mark. They don't have punctuation. So when they say, Lord of Lords, or the, the, the God of Gods, King of Kings, Day of Days, it is the, the very best. And they say that this collection of love songs written thousands of years ago is the Song of Songs, the best love song ever written. It's not written probably by Solomon. It's probably anonymous. Uh, it actually is not historical in the sense of chronological or theological. It's collections of love poems. Most of it is spoken by a woman, a maiden, who has this sexual, erotic, passionate desire for her fiancé, for the shepherd. And it's her singing to him, where is my love? When will he come? Where are you? And then he sings back. It's like a good play. And, and, and he sings back to her, where are you? I can't wait to go together. And there's sexual tension. It's like a great movie, like a great romance novel. And they're looking for each other. When they find each other, they're enthralled, but they're still waiting because they're good Jewish kids. And they're, waiting. they're, they're obeying the commandments, but they can't wait to consummate, to be together. And it goes all the, all the way through that. And if you think that Fifty Shades of Grey's got something going on or, or some, this is hot stuff. This is, this is pretty steamy. It's in the Bible. Let's look at this. Now, have I got your attention aroused? <laughs> Let's look at this. Let's read in the Song of Solomon, uh, the Song of, so Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. And look at how God says we should feel as a church about his great gift of human sexuality. This is towards the end of the book and they're getting close to consummating the relationship. They're getting close to bride and the groom. And here's a little warning, a little wisdom from the book and from the letters written for Solomon. Eight, four. I adjure you, means I beg you, daughters of Jerusalem, 
that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Another translation says before it's time. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. That's a very sensual comment. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Come on, that's a great country western song or rock and roll. It says, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire. The very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Whew, a little warm there. This is the Lord. This is the word of God. And one of the first statements of the church we need to make is the church needs to reclaim romance and sex as God's great idea, God's great gift. Sex is wonderful, pleasurable, powerful. Only in the human experience does it bind people together. It also is potent. It also is dangerous. It also is toxic and deadly and will scar and the church needs to reclaim both of those. Sex is this great gift, but it also came with this great gift of instructions that when violated, does damage to homes, families, children's hearts. Jesus says it like this. For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and a woman leave her home and the two become one flesh. That's heavenly math, not earthly math. One plus one is supposed to equal two, but not in God's economy of romance. One plus one equals one. And we tell our young people that what happens when you are sexually involved is you're not just skin on skin, flesh on flesh, fluid on fluid. You're also soul upon soul in a relationship that God intended to be permanent. And when you break that, you rip your soul and you give away part of yourselves. Many of us have experienced that. And it takes some healing. How do we encourage our kids to wait my brother and I, growing up, we lived over off Matador uh, by uh, 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 the, the school there. And our mother, would, whenever we were at school, she would buy our Christmas presents about a month out, and then she would hide and work. She thought we couldn't find them in a closet, right? And when she'd go to work, we'd get up, we'd look for them, we'd find them in the closet, and we would carefully peel the scotch tape off and open up and see, oh, rock'em, sock'em robots, oh, etch-a-sketch. We'd see everything we had a month before Christmas. And then Christmas morning came, and all the excitement of running down there and opening them up, we go, oh, yeah, rock'em, sock'em, hey! Because we had already opened the present before it was supposed to and ruined the surprise. And the scriptures say, don't ruin the surprise. Sex is great, but it's even greater. It's a blessing and a pleasure in its proper place. Wait, do not awaken love early. How do we encourage our kids? How do we as a church stand against the sexually saturated, worship-obsessive culture and say sex is God's idea, and it's in this way. Well, one is we've got to understand kind of the definitions. C.S. Lewis helps us with this love, the word love problem. You've heard this before. Howard's mentioned this before. We throw love around easily. There's only one word in English. You know, someone said the Eskimos have 200 words for snow. We got one, one word for love. The Hebrew culture and the Greek culture help us with this. C.S. Lewis, his book, The Four Loves, talks about that. Because I can say I love the Longhorns, not always, but most of the time. Could say, I, I love ice cream, I love my wife, I love the church, I love my grandchildren. Is that really the same kind of love? No. Greek helps us with this. In the, his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis gives us clarity. He said the first love is storge. Storge is the natural love of a mother for a child, a, a father for his children, a, a, a grandfather for his grandchildren. It's, it's earthly, but it's material, maternal love, familial, family love. Everyone has that, unless there's something really wrong. Then there's philea. 
What's the Philadelphia, city of brotherly love? It's the platonic, non-sexual love of friends, brother to brother, brother to sister, sister to sister. I I love Murray, but but I'm not attracted to him necessarily. I think he's a good-looking guy, but I I love Murray. Um, He's my brother in Christ. There's that great love, the love in the Bible, the fellowship, the Lord of the Rings kind of, kind of love that, that, that is there. Then comes the, the one that's all about, the one that gets more attention than any other, the one that our culture is obsessed with, eros, erotica, sexual, sensual, physical, human sexuality, given by God. It is one of the loves. But then there's the ultimate, the higher love, agape, the unconditional love, uh, the, the unrelenting love without return, love for sacrifice, God's unmerited, unrelenting love. We also call it grace, agape. Tim Keller says that our problem is that we've made the gods of America are sex, money, and power. That we're on our idol, the idols that we have before him are sex, money, and power. Never before in history, even though you look at the Roman culture or the Indian culture or the Greek culture, never before has any society had so much obsessive with erotic sexual love as ours. Look at our movies, look at our songs. Here's some of the songs kids are listening to today. Hot Girl Summer, I'm So Hot, Cheating on You, Boyfriend, Lover. Good thing we didn't have any songs like that, right? I'm like, My Baby Does the Hanky Panky. That wasn't bad, was it? Uh, feel like making love? No, that, that's not bad, right? Brown sugar, pour some sugar on me, making whoopee, afternoon delight, let's get it on. Sec- no, it's always been in our culture. We've obsessed, look at our books, look at our movies, look at our commercials. We have put Eros, uh, it superseded agape. It has been our God, it is on the throne, and that's a struggle. The challenge of the church is to dethrone Eros and put it in its good, godly, proper place below agape to show them the higher love. How does Eros get dethroned and put in its place? One of the best stories, one of the best examples of that is in the Old Testament, the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. You know the story, but there's a perfect picture of Eros and what it does to us when it's out of place, when it becomes the ultimate thing versus a good thing, it becomes a God versus what happens when agape is the higher love. You know the story. You know the con man, Jacob. You know, the, he, he cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. He cheated his uh, brother by dressing up and, and faking out Isaac with the help of his mother to get, to get the blessing. He's about to be killed by Esau. He has to run, and he's told to go look for a wife in another land, and that's where we pick it up, this crazy dysfunction. Genesis 29, starting 16, I'll just read the story. But look for Eros and look for Agape. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve for you for seven years for your younger daughter's hand, for Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Oh, what a great song. It's sad. No, scholars tell us this is really not a healthy thing. We'd love to think that this is a romantic great thing, but this is erotic love gone crazy. It's love at first sight, across the bar, uh, first meeting, uh, one night stand kind of love. It's not love, it's lust. Hey, what does he love? How much does he know about her? What does he love about her? It says he was beautiful in form and in appearance. She's a Victoria Model secret. She's a homecoming queen. She's the cheerleader. She's Raquel Welch, Marilyn Monroe, Margot Kitty. Every woman you can, a man has, has dreamed of. She's that woman. She's Eros. She's all about the outer woman, and he is smitten in lust. What's love got to do with it? Not much here. And then there's Leah. Poor Leah. Her eyes are weak. And I'm not sure, we're not sure what that means. Maybe it means she's older, her vision. 
Maybe it means her eyes are close set. She's just normal. Like 85% of the human race, she's just a normal looking person. She's not this a trophy wife or trophy husband. Or, uh, she's just normal like most of us. And he's not interested. How do we know it's crazy, obsessive, erotic love that's, be, that, that's on the throne in Jacob's life? He makes stupid decisions like we do when we're infatuated. He makes dumb choices like when we do when we're just looking at the outside, like our kids do, like, like we watch teenagers do when it's all about eros and not about agape. He says, oh, I'll work for her for seven years. That's a bad deal. It could have been really an easy deal. It could have been a trick. That's not how you usually do these kind of weddings. He said, I'll work for her for seven years. And here's how you know it's really crazy. He said to him, it was just like a few days. He's so obsessed. She is his God. Eros is on the throne. He is working like a crazy fool just to be with her. <laughs> and you know the rest of the story? I mean, th this is crazy. What happens? Stupid love. So then, what happens when you mix stupid erotic love with alcohol? Another bad country western song. I mean, look at this. You've got the night of the wedding. He's getting drunk. And guess what Laban's going to do? He's going to con the conner, the guy that dressed up to get and, and uh, fooled his father. He's going to get fooled by his father-in-law. And they dress up Leah, and they give Leah to her. He thinks it's Rachel, and they go. He drinks. They consummate the marriage. He wakes up, and it's like a really bad country western song because he looks over, and it's not the woman he thought it was. He's been duped. And he's so obsessive, he tells Laban, I'll work seven more years for Rachel. And finally, he wins Rachel's love. And you want to talk about a drama Two wives, one husband, 13 children for four women. This makes the Kardashians look like the Waltons. This is bad news. This is crazy. And these two women begin to fight. Imagine what these family dinners were like. Imagine what these family vacations were like. A disaster. As Rachel is jealous of Leah because Leah can have children. Leah's jealous of Rachel because Jacob loves Rachel and hates Leah, it says. This is the stuff of soap operas, but it really happened. Leah says, it says Leah was hated. He loved Jacob more than Leah. Then Leah tries, because of her obsessive, erotic, erotic love for Jacob, she tries to win him over by having children. She says after her first son, now my husband will love me. Here's a baby, do you love me? Now, the second son, because I'm hated by my husband, God gave me another, uh, another son. I want my husband's love so bad. The third one, well, at least he'll stay attached to me, it says. At least he won't dump me, even though he doesn't love me. What a hard thing. She is so obsessed with his love and winning him over that he's become her God. That's when Eros is out of, out of control. She is so obsessed, uh, he is so obsessed with Rachel. It's so dysfunctional. It's sad and sick, and we've all seen it in our lives and other lives. But then the turn comes. Then there's a movement in Leah's heart from Eros to Agape, the fourth son is born. And she says, this time, meaning I'm tired of living my life to make some man happy and hoping that he'll be, my prince will come, my dream of dreams, my dream man, my, my knight in shining armor on a white horse is gonna save my life and make it full. She says, nope, I'm not buying it anymore. This time, I'll praise the Lord. I'm gonna put my hope in the Lord in his agape love. She has moved from Eros to agape. Rachel, Rachel is still focusing on the outer, but Leah turns inward. Rachel becomes deceptive, manipulative. She has to bribe her husband to have sex with her. As she begins to fade over time and over age, the Eros in the relationship fades. There's no Botox, there's no implants, there's no hair dye, there's no fillers. Her outer beauty fades, but Leah's inner beauty grows. It's the end of, a, of Eros and agape wins. And how do we know this? At the end of this dysfunctional love story, we can tell that Jacob switches his heart from Rachel, the beauty queen, who's now just 
like everybody else, to Leah, who's been faithfully loving God now and her husband. It says that when Rachel is pregnant with her um, last child, Benjamin, she goes into uh, problems with the pregnancy, and Genesis 35, 19 says she's buried along the side of the road. This great Rachel, the obsessive trophy wife, the beauty queen, the Victoria's Secret model, he just buries her on the side of the road, makes a little memorial to her. It's a big memorial now, but he just left her on the side of the road. Guess where Leah got buried? In Genesis 49, 31, as Jacob is dying and talking to his 12 sons, he says, bury me next to Leah in the family plot. This is some family plot. This is the cave where Abraham and Sarah are buried, the grandparents, where Isaac and Rebekah, the parents are buried. And there's Leah, and next to her is, going to, is Jacob now. The honor of the family goes upon Leah. It switches from Eros to Agape. And guess what? The final reward is from Leah comes the last son, Judah. Judah is related to King David, who's related to Jesus. Leah, because of her faithfulness, her agape love, her inner love, gets to be the heir, gets to have the lineage of the Son of God. Agape dethrones Eros. Eros is put in its proper place. How do we help our culture? How do we stand against the culture and be counterculture about what real sex is and what it's meant and what real love is? How do we teach that to our children, to our generations next? Just this. One, as we point them to the real heroes, not Margot Robbie or Taylor Swift or Lady Gaga or Brad Pitt or Harry Stoller or any of those great people, we point them to the true heroes of our culture. If you've been married over 50 years or married to someone, would you stand up? Anyone that's been married over 50 years here? How about 40 years? How about 40? How about 30 years? My friends, these are the heroes of our culture right here. Thank you. Thank you. This is what we need to show. This is what love looks like. This is what agape love looks like. Commitment that goes beyond just romantic sexual love. Commitment that's buried deep in loyalty, deep in the power of the Holy Spirit to stay together. So we need to show them our real heroes and show them examples of commitment and marriage. Even if we failed to show them that we can be restored and they can be restored. The second thing we need to do as I wrap up is point them to him who is the embodiment of agape, to he who is not just loving with agape, but is agape itself. Last weekend, Brian Oliver from our church was in charge of a Kairos weekend. Uh, ben Palmer, the, the Sicolas, um, uh, Brad, Brady Clark, Will Esler, we spent four days in Neal Unit. I went to prison, some of you knew that was gonna happen eventually. Um, but I was in the Neal Unit. Went in the Neal Unit and for four days we worked with these men in white, they call them inmates. They'd never been loved unconditionally. And they have a thing in Kairos called agape, and it's letters. It's 42 letters written. Each one of them got 42 handwritten letters about just from strangers that they loved them, things drawn by kids, cookies, food, and then the highlight last Sunday, these 42 inmates who don't get birthday parties anymore because you don't have birthday inside. I didn't know that until then. But they were asked to sit at the table and close their eyes. And we sat in our small groups with these men there, close their eyes. And the outside Kairos team brought in these individually, perfectly made, individual, small, beautiful birthday cakes. And each inmate had written on there, Jesus loves you, Freddie. Jesus loves you, Michael. Jesus loves you, murderers, sexual abusers, sexual offenders, uh, wife abusers, these, these people that have done really heinous things. And they opened their eyes and there was a birthday cake made just for them. And they were astonished. They called it agape, unconditional. They hadn't done anything to deserve this. And then, if that weren't enough, 
all the outside Kairos people that have been cooking food and bringing things in and praying and writing letters on the outside, like some of you praying, they sang a song together and recorded it. Jesus loves you, this I know. We heard this group sing, Jesus loves you. And then they stopped, and one by one, each one of the people in the outside team would say, Charlie, Jesus loves you. Freddie, Jesus loves you. Sitting at my table was Ben Palmer, and Ben Palmer has a little bitty, the cutest little five-year-old girl named Lexi. And it just so happened that every time it came around with Lexi, would go, Charlie, Jesus loves you. It was a kick, one of the guys sitting at our table. And as I watched Charlie look at his birthday cake and, and little Lexi, three-year-old, Ben is sitting next to him saying, Jesus loves you. He burst into tears. He fell apart. And then Freddie, the murderer, and then Michael. And this little girl said, Jesus agapes you. He loves you. That's what our kids need to hear. That's what they need to hear, that love of Jesus Christ is the love they're really looking for in all of their crushes and all their obsessions, that they're really looking for him, that Jesus is the lover of their souls. He sings over them. He says, like it says in Solomon, come away with me, my beloved. He is their bridegroom, their wooer, their king, their champion. Everything they seek in romance and desire can be found in him. He storges them as a parent. He phileos them as a brother and sister in Christ. He desires them beyond a lover. He agapes them. He agapes them so much, he died on the cross for them. God demonstrated his agape that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. This generation needs to not awaken love before it's time because they're already loved for Jesus and he wants the best for them and that is the best. They need to hear his song of songs, his love song. One of my favorite love songs goes like this. See from his head, his hands, his feet. Sorrow and agape flow mingled down. Did e'er such agape and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? And here's the challenge. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love, agape love, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. Does he have your heart? your soul, your all. Is he your lover? And are you telling other people to love him? His love is stronger than death and he proved it on the cross. Amen? Speaking of someone that I love and is dear to us and that spreads the love